0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for Blog Tower One. Uh, you've got your host here tonight, Bradley Ulsop. Uh, a very warm welcome to all of you in Lincoln um, and beyond as well. Uh, we're also joined here tonight by Callum Roper.
1: Hello there, everyone. Hope you're doing well.
0: We're joined by Mister Watt. Good evening. Um, and we're also joined by Ollie Wawen. Hello there,
2: everyone. I hope you're all well.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and as the nights draw in and as Christmas is upon us, uh, we are yet again uh, being brought to the brink on Brexit. Uh, the, the gift that keeps on giving, uh, we, we are approaching another deadline. I forget how many deadlines we've approached now. Has anyone got a count? I, I think this is probably about the 20th deadline we, we've neared with Brexit um, over the last four years. Um, but, but we are on the brink of agreeing a trade deal. Well, we're on the brink of not agreeing a trade deal, actually. Um, and, and the, the very real possibility of no-deal Brexit looms. Um, uh, the, the two sides have, have had um, two particular uh, sticking points. So, so actually, the, the issue of Northern Ireland um, has... has I, I'd, I'd probably be overstressing it to say it's been solved, but it, it, the issue has at least been parked for a little while. Uh, Mr. Robert, do you want to tell us where, where we're at with Northern Ireland and, and, and what, what's been agreed by both sides on that issue?
1: Yeah, so with Northern Ireland, we remember the Internal Trade Bill, which was something that uh, really caused a lot of outrage. We spoke about it on the podcast a few episodes ago. Essentially, it allowed the UK government to break the withdrawal agreement, which was uh, of which some of the agreement included protocol around Northern Ireland, how both parties, being the EU and the UK, were to approach northern ireland in terms of trade in terms of state aid in terms of uh, standards of food and other products so the uk government has now backed down on this apparently out of good faith according to themselves but um i i think it's it's less about that i think that actually it was purely because that was one of the big stopping points in getting any sort of deal because it was so inflammatory it was so um, outrageous to essentially break an international agreement and therefore break international law months after it had been signed so they're back down on that but that also means that we're back to where we agreed on Northern Ireland prior to the Internal Trades Bill and what this means is that in the event of no deal we will still have some sort of protections for the situation with the Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland border that would mean that there will be no hard border there. We're we're assured of that. There won't be cameras. There won't be fences. There won't be barbed wire. There won't be a return to that. But what we will have is a hard border down the Irish Sea. So there will be checks on products coming over. A number of uh, products will be um, required to have uh, paperwork, as we would be expected if it was it being exported from outside the single market. So we're, we're going to be now considered a third party. Um, there, there is talk of some exceptions for things like food produce. So Tesco's can move its, its, uh, its bread and its milk and its eggs across relatively easily. But other products, they're going to be a lot harder to bring in. And obviously this is uh, throwing up a lot of... Um, Concern for some people, I would say, some people are saying that actually this hard border down the down the Irish Sea and a lack of a an agreement between the EU and the UK is actually going to see Northern Ireland push towards the Republic of Ireland because that's where it's going to find the least tension, uh, the least friction when it comes to international trade, and obviously the the Northern Ireland economy potentially could could be seriously damaged by this if they're not given the access that they need to whether it be the union of the united kingdom or the european union markets so as it currently stands we're still obviously waiting on whether there's going to be an agreement we're we're now rapidly approaching that deadline again it's another deadline i know a couple of days ago the government seem almost resigned that there was going to be no more talks. They're now saying that they've extended it for another few days Um, and I think they're just going to keep doing that up until the wire because really we do need an agreement that's going to see as little possible friction on the borders, uh, allowing people to move around, goods to move around and to allow the peace process in Northern Ireland to not, Step back because there's obviously that risk as well. It's not just an economic issue, but it's a political and a social issue that could have massive ramifications for the communities in Northern Ireland, in Great Britain, and the Republic of Ireland.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I mean, this this goes back to to the debates that reign throughout Theresa May's reign, really, doesn't it? it, it it's not. It's always the issue is, has never really been resolved, and, and we're still where we were with with, with Theresa May and, and the issue that, that dogged her Parliament, really. Um, the, yeah, it was always going to be this, or all the alternative was was the border checks in, on the island of Ireland. It, there was never really the Tories seemed to try and spin this idea that it wouldn't mean either of those things, but it was always obviously you know inevitably to one or the other, and and now it has. And I I, I think it's incredible that the, the DUP you know I, th- I think the Tories will, will do certain things that are bad for their electoral prospects, but they'll do it in ways where they think they can get away with it. I think you know like the whole dementia tax um, debacle in twenty seventeen the and Theresa May's manifesto. It was. It was obviously not going to be useful for them electorally, and I don't think they ever the force it was. But I thought basically they thought they could get away with it because they thought Corbyn was going to absolutely tank in those elections. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. But there was at least a there was a consideration that they, you know they could probably get away with it and not not harm themselves electorally too much. The DUP seemed to to, to not even have that basic survival instinct. You know, they 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 were very um, vocal supporters of Brexit, and um, you know to the point where there's there's all those. Investigations by, by Open Democracy and others about you know Brexit money that was, was funneled through through potentially funneled through the DUP making use of North Northern Ireland um, slightly different electoral laws around around donations in North Ireland. So you know the DUP were very much behind the Brexit project, but r- really it, it was always going to be a massive problem for them as, as a Unionist party that are very committed to the Union, um, and and now it's borne fruit, hasn't it? You know it, 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 it has upset that relationship with the rest of the Union, um, and and you know, certainly we're not in a position where United Ireland is going to happen next year, but it, but it certainly created a political and economic landscape where that seems more likely than it did pre-Brexit. And it just seems like an, an incredible act of electoral of all naivety by, by the DUP. Um, Callum, what you want to come in?
3: I was just going to say it's slightly terrifying, really, in a way that, I mean, there must have been some rational people within the D, w, DUP, rather, um, who would know that, the only way that they could get what they want from brexit would be to trash the good friday agreement and re-establish a hard border on the island of ireland essentially Um, i would be interested to know if that was going to have some repercussions for the dup um, in the long run because surely people in northern ireland would look at that and go you're a bit mad really aren't you um advocating for this prospect I, I don't really know enough about northern irish politics to to know what that would mean though um but it's it's um fascinating to see a four year conundrum basically be resolved in a snap um and as say as as you've been saying come down ultimately on the side of effectively leaving Northern Ireland in the long run much more closely economically tied to um, the Republic of Ireland and the EU than to the UK, and that will have, uh, I think, very interesting implications going forward for Ireland.
0: I, you know, I think it's certainly not the the only time that the DUP have displayed this sort of um, l- lack of electoral. Uh, calculus, I suppose. Um, I, th- I think particularly on a lot of social issues, you know, such, such as abortion LGBT rights, things like that. The DUP have consistently lagged behind popular opinion, and particularly the opinion of younger generations on that. Um, now, I'm, I'm not going to claim that, that Sinn Féin are absolutely perfect on all those issues, um, but they, they certainly seem to be a bit more willing to, to engage with those communities and, 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 and tack policy that way to, to some degree. Certainly more so than some of the hardcore in the DUP. Um, and it seems like the DUP are increasingly painting themselves into an electoral corner. In that, you know, there, there might be new generations of unionists coming through that might otherwise consider voting for for the you know the, the strong unionist party, and um, but 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 find it difficult to do so given their, their track record on 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 various social issues. So it, you know, it seems like the DUP have a track record for for I, I suppose it's quite quite blind ideology really, isn't it? To some degree, and there's there's no. There's no um, Sort of, of of consideration for their actual prospects whatsoever, and they, they do seem to be increasingly putting themselves into a corner. Although I imagine they'll they'll hold on to, to sort of a certain level of power and influence for some time yet, but hopefully there'll be a day when that's not the tr- not the case. Um. So so we do seem to have uh, I say resolved the the, the issue At least it's been parked for a while. Um. Although I imagine there's many many more chapters to write in that side yet. And um, but so that that's not the thing holding up um, tra- trade agreement and um, amongst the EU and the UK. Um instead, it's two other issues. What one, which is the minor issue of the two, which is fishing, um, and and the other, which is the more major sticking point, is is the ratchet clause. So, um, Callum, Callum what do you, do you want to explain to us about about fishing and what, and what the issues of that are?
3: Well, anyone who's been following it closely. Uh, Brexit closely all we'll know that fishing has been a a massive uh, red red letter issue since before uh, uh, 2016. Um, you know Margaret Thatcher, you know going all the way back to the 80s was was parodied as having been sitting at supposed to have been sitting at the negotiating table when they were discussing the Maastricht um, Treaty, talking about my fish, my fish, that sort of thing. Um, Of course, the the reality is that uh, fishing stocks move around all the time, Um, and although I haven't been able to find the source for it, I have seen an image in the last couple of days which apparently shows the positions of the current British fishing fleet, Um, and about 80% of them. Um, are actually located in EU waters, only about 20% are actually in UK waters and that's basically what the common fisheries policy is is effectively supposed to be about. It's so that uh, the fishermen of, of Europe, whatever country they're from, are able to fish in each other's waters and also crucially, sell to one another very easily. If we get a hard Brexit, what's going to happen is that you know uh, British fishermen will not be able to uh, fish in EU waters and they will also find it a lot harder to sell uh, what it is they are catching. So it's absolutely economically not in their interests. The other point as well on on economics is that it actually only represents about 0.2 percent of our GDP. So it's clearly not a huge economic issue and if it was just that it probably would have been agreed, maybe years ago, um, to to keep some elements of the Common Fisheries Policy, but because UKIP um, and uh, their their supporters, some of whom come from the fishing industry, strangely, um, have been banging on about you know taking back control of our waters, this has become one of the the, the three main sticking points, which are as you say, the ratchet clause Fishing and uh, enforcement uh, of those regulations, uh, which would normally come under the auspices, I think, of the of the of the ECJ. Um, yeah. But yes, it's uh, so yeah. This very trivial issue has now become become one of the main impossible clauses that uh, that, 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 the, that the British government and the EU apparently. Uh, can't agree upon and uh, may cause us to crash out of the EU in uh, a couple of weeks' time.
0: Uh, Absolutely nuts, ollie ollie what what what's the solution to this fishing conundrum?
2: Um, I I honestly I don't know what the solution is. Um, but I don't think it's a hard Brexit or a No Deal Brexit. Um, I just wanted to, um, since we're talking about like, um, like fish, which is quite a a main source of of food in the UK, I just wanted to come in and talk about, um, the possibility of food shortages because, um, you know, no deal is looking like a, a possibility now, um, like a very real one. Um, there's already been test runs of, of like simulations of what Brexit could have on the impact on, on, on transport, um, and food coming into the UK and, and how are, how are retailers and wholesalers, manufacturers and, and the transport industry like going to react on, on the 1st of January, like it, it seems very chaotic. Um, Boris Johnson recently highlighted the, the potential um, like food shortages that might occur, um, we eat a lot of fresh food, which is grown in other countries, over half our vegetables are, are imported and I think it's going to highlight what a devastatingly like bad effect this is going to have on on our country. Like around thirty percent of our food comes from the the EU, um, and we have a massive deficit in in fruit and vegetable production. So I don't know. It's gonna. I don't know what the answer is in regards to fishing. Sorry to for it to, to take a uh, tangent, but um, it's going to have massive um, implications. I think on the way we eat.
0: Yeah. Uh- I think you're right, and I think the the reason we'll will come to the reason why um, no deal is looking increasingly likely because uh, well, whilst fishing policy is, is an area of of um, disagreement between the two parties, I think it's very much the junior issue and, and the senior issue really um, is is over the ratchet clause. So, for, from my understanding of the issue, it seems to be that the EU is, is quite quite adamant that that. Um, so basically, it's, the agreement is an attempt to have regulatory alignment um, b- between various issues, such as, you know, such as workers' rights legislation, environmental legislation, all these sorts of things. that um, there is an attempt in any, well, in any trade group, agreement really, to have to have broad regulatory alignment um, in, in order to ass- assure something like that the single market continues between the UK and the EU. Um, and the, the EU is is proposing that um, that in in, in any uh, if if for instance legislation is passed through the European Parliament. Um, and that, that raises the, the level um, of, of environmental protection um, or, or workers protection that is required upon business and um, obviously that will produce additional costs for businesses um, in, in most cases um, you know there'll be, there'll be some sort of cost passed on to, to businesses at that point which if that then becomes out of sync with, with their competitors in the UK and um, that essentially put puts EU businesses at a competitive disadvantage um, to the UK and, and therefore the EU market, the um, in, in EU economy in general, at a competitive disadvantage in, in those industries. So the EU is attempting basically to say if if, if they pass additional legislation through um, their parliament um, that, that improves environmental rights and workers' rights in a way that could be seen to affect their competitive abilities, um, that the UK would either automatically adopt those practices as well or they would have the option to, to, to incur um, higher tariffs from, from the EU. Um, and, and, this seems to be a real sticking point. Boris Johnson has, has, has gone out of his way to, to, to sort of say, I think the phrase he's used is that no prime minister could ever accept such a term. Um, which I'm not sure is entirely true, because I think this is a fairly common um, thing that occurs. in. I mean, I'm I'm by no means an expert on international trade agreements, but I think it's a fairly common issue in trade agreements, and there's things like this in in a lot of different trade agreements. So I I don't know if he's being entirely genuine there, but you can see how this plays into the issue of sovereignty of of the UK Parliament and and the idea that we would still somehow be subject to to EU legislation. Again, that's not quite true either, because we would have the option to opt for higher tariffs, um, which probably happens in quite a lot of different trade relations anyway where there's uh, where there's dealignment alignment between regulatory frameworks that you know tariffs exist they're a thing the point of a trade agreement is to reduce those tariffs and, and therefore increase free trade um but but yeah the, the idea that there might some be some dealignment between regulatory policies and therefore there's some tariffs induced isn't exactly a novel thing in, in international trade and um, who coming Callum Roper what, what do you think of this is is, is um Is this something that should be stopping um, a deal to be achieved? Is is Boris right to to be happy to go to the wire and and call on a deal over this issue?
1: I, I think you're right in saying that actually this is a pretty standard feature of international trade agreements. I think the issue comes is that we're so unfamiliar with having to sign these trade agreements because we've been so reliant on the European Union and the deals that they sign with Canada, Australia and the likes. We're not familiar with this sort of thing. We don't realise that actually, if we want to be a trading global country, as they like to paint us, um, as, as, as some people wanted Brexit for, so we could open our markets to the rest of the world, we're going to be signing a lot of deals like this anyway. If you're going to enter an international trading agreement with a major economic power Obviously, they're going to protect their sovereign interests and their markets. The same would happen if we sign up to something like that. Imagine if we put in something like that to say, well, the European Union cannot undercut our, trade, our, our standards of products and our standards in terms of trading, whether it be food standards, whether it be environmental standards. And then the EU said, well, we're not signing up to that because we want to do our own thing. We would be saying that they're disrespecting us and they're disrespecting our, our goodwill in, in the negotiations. So what we've got to consider is this, is if we really want a trade deal, which we do really want a trade deal for the sake of so many people that will be either at risk of losing their jobs, at risk of, of as, as Ollie spoke about be at risk of supply chains breaking down, We'll be at risk of losing some key partners in the world, or at least worsening our relations with them, then we need this trade deal. And we're going to need trade deals a lot like it with other countries that might not be as easy to negotiate with. The EU are one of our closest partners and they want a deal. So I think that we should at least... I I wouldn't use language such as back down, but I think we should at least go to the table and recognise that this is something that you have to sign in such a big and such um, such a large trade deal that encompasses so many different areas of trading policy. It's not just a simple deal between two nations saying that we're going to export arms or something like that. This is a a comprehensive deal that's looking to encompass food, technology, transportation, all sorts of things. And if we want to protect our interests, then we've got to come to the table and actually realise that this this is the only way that we we can unlock those markets that we want to regain access to after voting to opt out of them as an EU member.
0: Uh, mr watt what's your take on this well i I think
3: it will be in january i'll be I'm looking forward to seeing how people are going to react when they see the cost of importing things on a personal level is goes up in fact I've already seen you know a few things going around on social media saying people are people are starting to complain because uh the, the cost of uh importing things like furniture and goods from abroad is costing something like three or four times what it used to and and that's because that those companies that are doing the importing now have to factor in the potential cost of tariffs uh, coming in and and that's an example of how it's going to have an impact on ordinary people's daily lives I mean I know most of the time you know most people don't order things from abroad but you think like at the moment like uh after christmas you know people um might want to uh purchase deals and that sort of thing that's where that's when people are going to start to realize what this uh, actually means and of course that will be uh, a very small impact compared to all of the businesses that of course will be affected which buy an awful lot more stuff from the from the european union um, I mean, it's just I it just uh, you you don't really know even where to to start with it because it, it ultimately comes down to si- the fact that size matters. You know how people are th- thinking about global Britain in terms of its old empire, as as Callum said, that empire doesn't exist anymore. How was Britain able to go around the world? conquering places like subcontinents like like india it's because its britain's economy was huge in the 19th century because it was the first country to industrialize to produce things on a mass scale that's how they were they were able to dominate in that time now you we are a much much smaller economy relatively speaking to the european union to the rest of the world to china to india to america even canada um And so they have huge economic leverage over us, no matter whether you're part of uh, the world trade or following World Trade Organization rules or you have some kind of uh, bespoke um, trade deals. That's why it was so monumentally stupid for us to leave the the European (coughs) Union in the first place. Um, So, yeah, Boris Johnson knows all of this. Of course, I feel like maybe uh, their plan was to uh, exercise brinkmanship um, and then to snatch a deal at the last minute. And I feel like if that strategy was going to work, it probably would have been there. Probably would have been an agreement earlier this month. The reason these talks keep being extended is because the EU can actually afford to just let Britain drop out. They're not going to sacrifice the fundamentals of their economic system in order to accommodate this recalcitrant former member, um, which could has the capacity seriously to undermine that economic system if it's allowed to if it if it is allowed to as a result of a bad trade deal. Um, And I think that the British government have clearly not realize this until just now and that's why the de- negotiations keep being extended because they actually don't know where to go from here um i mean i, I saw a suggestion as well um michael walker on the Vara media saying i i think that it's you know people are just being primed um to think that there's going to be a no deal and that the that the tories are gonna uh, are gonna reveal something at the at the last minute that's a bit like when Boris Johnson first became prime minister when um, he changed some of the wording on Theresa May's deal uh, and presented it as a brand new quote-unquote oven ready um, withdrawal agreement or deal as he called it um, deliberately uh, confusingly uh, no doubt um, so that that might be the strategy but I mean if if we're looking at the issues we've talked about with the Ratchet Clause, with the with, with fishing and with the enforcement, I I don't see having stood up in front of the Commons and actually said no one, no Prime Minister would sign up for this agreement. I I can't see how in a matter of days he can actually backtrack on that. Um so you know, it looks like we're about to become a, a backwater off the off the coast of, of of France. Um so, you know, the supermarkets I think it's important to say are telling people don't panic buy, don't stockpile. We've got plenty of stock in. I think it's worth reminding people of that. Um but food prices are gonna go up. The costs of importing goods are going to go up generally speaking. Um, and it is going to start having an impact on people's lives, and uh, the, the results are unpredictable. I don't think we can really comment too much on too much on it beyond beyond that. But um, yeah, it's it's quite scary. And don't forget as well, lots of people, of course, reliant on medicines as well. Um, again, there are stockpiles in place. Uh, I understand, but they won't last forever if something isn't done. So yeah, worrying times for us all.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose that there's there's two things to pick up on there, isn't there? There's the idea of w- what's actually going on with with the Tory strategy and, and Boris's strategy. And so, Ollie, I'd be interested for your take on on what. Um, sorry, there's a really loud echo. Alarm, I think that's you again. Um, you yeah, know, so the, there's this question of what's actually Boris trying to do? Is 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 this a genuine ideological disagreement that that uh, Boris genuinely feels like he cannot accept? And it, this, this, um, what he is painting as as, as an attempt to, to override the sovereignty of, of the UK Parliament, but by ha- having to either accept higher tariffs or, or or regulatory alignment with the EU, is is he genuinely simply unable, you know, morally, um, to 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 accept such a term, um, or? Or, you know is there is there you know is there something else going on is is some of this a bit sort of pantomime stage politics um i I think he, he's probably correct you know he probably doesn't like the idea of that and i think it, it's very much tied into the project of brexit and the idea of sovereignty although i think i think it's, it's important to realize that actually you know this is actually sort of progressive in that instead of a race to the bottom in terms of nations competing it's actually sort of a race to the top in that if if the eu raises its standards then the uk would be obliged to do the same or accept higher tariffs. I suppose actually that if we accepted this, the, the end result of it probably could be sort sort of quite progressive um, in some degrees. Um but you know, so I I think Boris probably gen you know, the, the Tory party genuinely it goes against what they're they're trying to do and, and what the project of Brexit has been about. Um but but is but is some of this sort of just brinkmanship and, and you know is, is some of what's going on here a bit of pantomime. Um, or, or are we actually just going to head to a no deal, and and, and that's the end of it? Um, Ollie, what do you think?
2: Uh, that's a difficult question. Um, I think I think uh, a good like a good portion of what's happened with Brexit has been you know theatrical, because um, you know Boris Johnson is a very theatrical man. Um, a lot of the stances he's taken, the disagreements he's had with the EU, have been posturing, and they've been to make good headlines as, as we've said before, I'm sure Um, this is so kind of, it's it's entirely frustrating um, that this issue has dominated British politics for the last four years um, over, you know, any other topic. Um, It's just, it's just been a, uh, an exercise in, in British exceptionalism, you know, it taps into, as Callum was saying earlier, um, these ideas that, you know, we were a a global economy and, um, yeah, and we kind of ruled the world almost economically during the industrial, um, period. Um, yeah, it's, I think a lot of what he does and says, I think uh, he knows what's going on. Um. As, as I, th- I think Callum said, you know he's quite an intelligent man. Um, he knows well, not maybe not entirely the, the consequences of what he's doing, but I think he's doing it for political reasons, um, and I don't think he has any uh, moral objections that are legitimate, almost in a weird way.
0: I, yeah, I think. Th- yeah, so I, I think I'm, I'm convinced that um, that that. I can understand why it would be perfectly in line with what the Tories have tried to sell Brexit as for for you know since the referendum, and I, I can understand why what the EU is proposing, at least on the surface, appears to fly in the face of that. So I I I, I think it probably is some degree at which um, Boris is genuinely not okay with, with what the EU is proposing. I think I probably disagree with him on that, but I can understand why that would be the case. I suppose really the question is like Callum was suggesting, others have said. Is, is is there maybe some sort of compromise that the Tories have sort of got hidden away that they're going to reveal at the last hour, or or are we actually just tumbling towards a no deal Brexit? Um, I, I you or Mister Oper, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Uh,
1: well, I well, I I think it's a, a bit of both. They probably have got a a last minute deal they they they're planning to hatch, which will be, well under under negotiation or at least. The norms of negotiation you hold you go out for for something better than what you you want and then haggle your way down to roughly where you want to go the issue is i think that they've set themselves a goal that's unachievable i think the brexit that they've sold to the electorate the brexit they've sold to their mps that are brexiteers and the brexit that they've sold to, to, to basically everyone, including themselves really, I think they fooled themselves, is, is a Brexit that's unachievable. It's a Brexit that that recognizes our, our full sovereignty in the world whilst keeping all the benefits of being a close partner to the EU. And we can do both, but the way they're going about it is not that. So I hope that they do have something up their sleeve to get a deal of some description but as it currently stands that where they're starting they really need to start haggling and haggling quick and getting what they want down because it's 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 unrealistic and i don't think that the eu as as callum rightly said the eu would be in a stronger position Than we will in the case of a no deal they will be damaged that that's without a doubt but they i think that they would be in a stronger position than we would in terms of economic damage which is only going to be multiplied by the impact of covid on the economy so we've got a we've got to really start getting on with finding an alternative that's going to please the general public or at least please the tory party donors because i don't think that they're uh, (laughs) they're not going to budge but we need to find something that's going to make them budge, because otherwise we're going to be stuck in this endless, endless cycle. Um, yeah, and, and if I'm honest with you, I'm not feeling too hopeful about the situation. But I'm, I'm really uh, confident that the Tories are going to cock it up in one way or another.
0: So I, I suppose the the official deadline for, for an attempt to reach a, an agreement is the thirty first of December. Um. I, I don't know. I imagine they're probably gonna try and, and push it all the way and there might you know, we might still be reading frantic headlines on the thirtieth of December about deals here and there or, you know, possibilities of deals here and there. Um I, I imagine that seems to be how it's worked in the past with these sorts of self imposed deadlines that have existed um in in the past although I, I suppose part of me would respect it if they just you know if Boris just sort of oh fuck it it's not going to work um let, let's call it early and we'll call it a day <laughs> it, it, perhaps, perhaps there's some respect to that because it just seems to be endless and carry on forever uh, but I imagine we'll still be hearing sort of, of gossip and potentials of deals from Laura Kinsberg um right up until the wire I imagine so I'm sure this won't be the the, the last time we visit this topic on the podcast um I think probably probably in future episodes, we, we can give a bit more space to talking about what, what the ramifications of an earlier might be politically, but also for individuals in terms of the economy. But from the future um, that looks bleak to a past that was very bleak as well, um, it was the anniversary of, of Labour's catastrophic loss in, in the 2019 general election. The 12th of December marked a year um, since that 2019 general election in which Boris Johnson won an 80 seat majority. Um, in the Houses of Parliament, um, so it it was you know a, a, a crushing results night for for the, the Labour Party. Um, the, the Labour Party lost sixty seats, um, whilst the Conservatives won forty eight. Um, the swing to the Tories wasn't actually that that high across the board; it was about just over one percent. But the, the Labour lost almost eight percent of the vote. Um, so so that's really where where the loss was. Um, and I, I think a good chunk of some of that obviously went to the Tories, but I think a bigger portion of it went to the Brexit Party. Um, so I, I suppose the question is obviously since then we've we we've, we've there's been a leadership election and Keir Star has been elected. Um, there has been much internal um disputes in within the party around the uh, the suspension and and then the removal of the whip from from the previous leader Jeremy Corbyn. Um. Some other prominent left-wing uh, MPs have, have bought the ire of the, the new leadership um, from Rebecca Long Bailey for 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 tweeting an article that, that um, allegedly uh, Clay, you know um, had anti-Semitic tropes in it. Um, it, it. She was sacked from the front bench for that, although she she still has the whip in the party. Um, and and also, some prominent left-wing MPs have um, got defied defied the whip um, over the various um, bills passing through Parliament, and 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 um, lost lost the front bench for that reason as well. So I, I suppose a year on, and the party is is probably not in tip-top fighting shape. It would be fair to say. Callum, what what do you think?
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for coming to me first. Uh, There's the, an the, 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 the interesting. Rather depressing litany of uh of bad news isn't it um but uh you know it might surprise you in a way that I'm kind of optimistic still um and the reason that I say that is that you know all of this that has stuff that has gone on um we have lost unfortunately ten percent of our membership uh, across the country um But the membership numbers are holding up, generally speaking. There hasn't been like a a, a mass exodus beyond that. Um, And I think that the ineptitude with which there has been an attempt clearly from the top to try and basically put the left back in its box post the election of Keir Starmer um, is... I think is probably what's persuading people to stay. This fight definitely uh, isn't over for the soul of the party. I, I am disappointed, I have to say, in Starmer. I think, um, I think he's thrown a lot away. Um, clearly, in the first few months, I, I've got a poster on my wall. I I, I used to um, in in Zoom calls. I used to have a poster of uh, from Jeremy Corbyn's campaign in 2015. On one shoulder and a poster of um, Keir Starmer on the other shoulder, um, and my idea from from that in the middle of this year was that it would it would seem to be sort of balanced, you know. And now I realise it would just be pissing off basically everybody, uh, no matter <laughs> what no matter what their point of view would be. So I've stopped doing that. But the the interesting thing about the Starmer poster is that it's obviously the one that was sent out to, I think, pretty much the whole membership uh, during his campaign. On on the reverse of that, you can see lots of endorsements from people like you know Ricky Tomlinson, Connie Huck, interestingly, um, more, more importantly, uh, Laura Parker, who's the uh, national coordinator for Momentum. You know, he held all of the cards he had these 10 pledges which were essentially corbynite pledges his pitch to the membership was you know, corbynism with a friendly face and you could go all the way back you know i could talk about how you know um the reason that J- jeremy corbyn arose in the first place wasn't some sort of left-wing entry s plus it was simply because labour party members had got fed up of being told that the the way to win elections was to meet the tories halfway um, and it was time to take more principled stance and see how that works. Um, and that approach seemed to be proved to be working in 2017, and it wasn't proved wrong in 2019, which got screwed over by um, the question of Brexit. Um, so in terms of party, internal party management, I'm still somewhat optimistic, because uh, if you look at the first year of Corbyn's reign, for instance, you know, it was very chaotic. Um and of course culminating ultimately in the in the chicken coup of twenty sixteen. Um and then afterwards uh Jeremy Corbyn sort of managed to find his feet. So I hope I hope that Starman might learn some of the lessons of the last seven, eight months, whatever it's been, um, and, and start uh trying to do what he's always pledged to do, which is to try and actually unite the party. I think his best opportunity to do that recently was lost. As I've said before, when when Jeremy Corbyn was disciplined by the party, um, there was there was a, a credible argument for, for that taking place. Um, he should have used Jeremy Corbyn being cleared by that disciplinary, fair disciplinary process as an opportunity to say, to both say we will take complaints about anti-Semitism seriously, um, and we're going to treat people fairly as well, which is why we've gone through this disciplinary process. Um, that opportunity, of course, has been has been somewhat thrown away. Um, but maybe in due course, think things in politics might calm down a little bit. Um, we, we might have a conference next year. Hopefully will happen in the normal way, and maybe we'll get some actual policies that the, the I think that will be the turning point really because the thing which sunk ed Miliband's premiership for instance, you know the first two or three years when he was in charge it was actually quite popular you know his approval ratings were relatively high um the twenty twelve election local elections in particular were quite good for labor um but then in the, I think it was in the summer of 2012, uh, that's when uh, Labour started talking about tough decisions and basically endorsing the the Conservative Party's uh, economic agenda. Um, so that will, as much as people like to pretend sometimes that policy doesn't matter, it absolutely does. Um, people need to believe that, that Labour will um, transform the country uh, in their interests. Um, so I, I, until we see what happens at that next Labour Party conference, I, I remain optimistic that uh, that we can win. And you know, if you look at what happened in 2019, you know what I said after the 2017 election. You know, we we almost saw a, a return to two-party politics, didn't we? Um, you know, the smaller parties were sort of shut out. Both party, both the main parties got about 40% of the vote. So the 2019 election was going to be decided by whoever's vote held up. Um, in 2019, the Tories vote held up because they wanted to get Brexit done. So that 40% coalition of people who really cared about that voted for that. And the Labour vote fragmented to the Brexit party, to uh, the Lib Dems in certain places, depending on the constituency. Overcoming that barrier is what will uh, allow Labour to win the next general election. Once we have seen the fallout from Brexit, we'll see how that affects the Conservative Party. Hopefully we can then turn the national conversation back onto the more material concerns of healthcare, education, public transport and so on, uh, which uh, is where is the strong point of Labour, whoever the leader is, um, and we can turn that into election victories, uh, both locally and, in due course, nationally.
0: Uh, ollie ollie what do you what do you make of that? Do you, do you think the, the Labour Party has, well, I, I suppose to give the whole range of options here, has the Labour Party learnt the lessons it needs to have done for, from the 2019 defeat, um, or, or at the very least, are you optimistic that that it that it will have learnt enough lessons to be able to be, um, you know. To, to challenge uh, Boris for for the Premiership. Um, although it might not be Boris, actually, by the time the next election comes around, There's all sorts of rumours about him resigning. Um, it, maybe sometime quietly next year, he might bumble off in the way he does. Um, so, so it might not be Boris, but do you, do you, are you hopeful that the Labour Party has learnt the lessons it needs to, or that it will have done by the time of the next election?
2: Um, the way Callum Watt uh, phrased it makes me very optimistic. Um, I think... Yeah, I can't help but um, feel somewhat differently. Um, Although I'm not a Labour member, I'm still um, quite quite invested in in um, well, in politics. Um, Yeah, uh, I I don't think I don't think Labour's necessarily learnt the lessons that it should have um, since the the 2019 general election. Um, I think there was a lot of mistakes made. on the, the battleground of, well, arguably the, the main thing that almost lost us the election, uh, which was Brexit. Um, I, I don't really, because, because, uh, because actually Corbyn, you know, he took his stance and it wasn't a very popular one at the time, um, you know, to, to, um, uh, to renegotiate, uh, the deal with the EU um and you know although it wasn't popular he he took a stance and i don't see that as something uh, Keir Starmer might do today um he is a populist at, at large i i think i think he he sticks up his his finger and see which way the wind, wind blows before he says anything or takes any stance on anything um and i, I really yeah i don't Although obviously there's a lot more uh, elements of the Labour Party than you know just the leader, um, I don't think Keir Starmer um, has necessarily learnt the lessons that needed to be learnt from the 2019 election, which is maybe not to take the electorate for granted in in some respects. Um. Yeah.
0: Uh, Mr Roper, I, I'm going to come to you before we move on because I'm, I'm sure you've got lots to say on this. Um, but, you know, so you know, maybe, maybe the Liberal Party hasn't learned all it needs to do from the 2019 election. Maybe it's not in um, tip-top shape yet to, to contest an election, whatever that might be. I, I, I'd be very... I'm going to go out on a limb here and someone can play this recording back to me at the appropriate time. I do not think the next general election in this country will be 2024. I think it will be earlier than that maybe maybe i'm not going to say when but I, I would be very surprised if we have a full length parliament in um, in this term so I might be eating my hat um but, but but when someone replays this to me but i i'm reasonably confident 2024 will not be the next uk general election in this country And um, so we, whenever the next election is perhaps currently we're not in tip top shape to to fight that although maybe as, as callum says we, we might we might actually be able to get there if we get our policy in order um, and all the rest of it what would what would we need to be doing beyond policy? Um, but you know, in terms of organising, in terms of learning lessons, in terms of strategy and communications and things from from the twenty nineteen election, what should the Labour Party be doing differently to to be ready to fight um, the Tories and contest that 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 election,
1: Callum? Well, I think. I, I agree with Callum on, on policy, I think policy is one of our strongest points, but also one of our greatest assets, and this is something that we learnt in the 2019 general election and prior elections, It's one of our greatest assets as a party is our people, is our activists that go out and knock doors, they deliver leaflets, come rain or shine, and they believe in a better, fairer society. And it doesn't matter how they voted in the leadership election, because that's happened now. And that's not a line that we should be fighting over. What we should be looking at is that firstly, we've got local elections, hopefully, in May of next year. And that is our starting that is our starting platform for our building of momentum into the next general election, whenever that will come. I think that an infused, passionate activist base, grassroots is exactly what we need as a party now no more centralising, no more dictating as to what we can and can't say because actually I think that a lot of our members just want to see a change and a lot of our members are working hard for that and I think that also as we go forward listening to constituents and listening to our communities is what we've also got to do. I think We always talk about Brexit as being the big issue in 2019 and we were caught out by the get Brexit done. But I think that also has a lesson to teach us that actually we should listen to our communities, not necessarily fight for a Tory-style Brexit, but we should also be listening to our communities and where they have concerns about the European Union, where they have concerns about other issues, we listen to them and our policy reflects what those communities are saying, and I know it's a very difficult balancing act in terms of Brexit, but that's done now. But there's so many other things that I think the country are united on. I think they want a fairer way of, of delivering welfare that isn't going to shame people, isn't going to put people in extreme levels of poverty whilst they're re- receiving benefits. It, we want a healthcare system that's going to look after people. These are the policy areas that Callum was talking about that we are extremely passionate about and we need to get our activists back out there because we've had a hard year. It's been a very difficult year. We can't meet in person. We only meet online. We've had some bitter infighting within the party. But actually, I think that that's largely at the top level of the party we see this this politics being played out. By and large, if you ask a local Labour Party member what they want. They want to get out on the doorsteps. They want to be in their community campaigning for that better, fairer future. So I think when that general election comes, the lessons we've learned is this policy is important, candidates are important, but that activist base is our greatest asset because we don't have the big bankers that the Tories have. We don't have the big backers. What we have is our people, and our people are embedded in the community and they're there to serve their community and campaign for that better future for their community, whether it be on those issues of health, education, the environment. And that's what we've got to recognise, and we've got to build on that strength, as I say, starting next year, or starting now, effectively, and we've got to get going.
0: I could not agree more um, with those sentiments, Colin. Mr Watt, do you agree you wanted to come in? Concur entirely
3: with uh, that sentiment, and I hope obviously we're starting to work towards that as well uh, in Lincoln. I think if we can, if we can make the next general election about the three big issues: um, healthcare, concern of the old; housing, the concern of the young; or increasingly, by the way, uh, the early middle-aged, um, and climate change. And if we can, if we can successfully shift the conversation onto those three issues through our communities uh, and really, really good organising, we can do that. It won't just, it won't come from the fucking circle chair club or whatever. It will come from. People what's having the what's with the me.
0: fucking circle chair club? That sounds like a great club.
3: The <laughs> that's the, the the um, well, the chair circle, I think it's called. It's a it's a fundraising idea. One of the first things that Keir Starmer did when he became leader was obviously start to, to write out to all these wealthy donors who had left the party during the, during the Corbyn years. So, some and, of
0: the use uh, of Islamophobia.
3: Yes, well, yeah, precisely. Um, and uh, it, it, the, there's an invitation to join this um, exclusive club called the Chairs mm-hmm. Circle, which um, gets you... Uh, brunch with the leader before the before the um before the the oh, leader's absolutely. speech at conference, yeah. all sorts of other networking opportunities for only four hundred and sixteen pounds a month.
0: That's a, um, yeah, that sort of absolute classist nonsense. Oh, yeah. It's
3: a it's 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 a steal, isn't it? It's a bargain. Yeah. Um, especially you know, if he yeah. becomes prime minister. this But I, I mean, I I I diverge. It's not the sort of thing the Labour Party should be doing to win elections.
0: Yeah, especially so, so, not not now. Maybe so in the nineties. To clarify, it's access to to dinners. It's just when you said the fucking circle chair, but I wondered if it was some sort of slightly, slightly more more uh, uncouth <laughs> exclusive club <laughs> I wasn't aware of in the Labour Party. <laughs> no, well, I mean it might turn into that. I don't know. It could be
3: <laughs> that will be the next Guido forks thing, won't it? You know. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to touch that with the
0: barge pole. I think. Um, yeah. Uh, just to clarify, actually, I, I have just accused the, the Labour Party of, of writing to try and obtain donations from, uh, a, 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 well, basically a racist. Um, the party has denied that, I believe. Um, they, they, Well, they, they've said that they are not aware of any approach, new approach to him, I think, is, is the latest they've said on that. So it is alleged that they've written to him just, just to cover us there. Um, OK, so that, that probably brings us nicely into our, our final section. Um, we're just going to talk briefly. Uh, I suppose we we should always have a ten minute segment on COVID, shouldn't we, for for, for this for as long as it goes on. Um, COVID, uh, the lockdown is over. Um, the the country has returned to a tiered system. Um, it it seems like I don't think it. I think very very few places are in tier one. Um, it, maybe it's a pub quiz question if anyone was having pub quizzes. As um, so to which parts of the country are in tier one, I think almost everywhere is in at least tier two. Um, and of, of course, the, the news today is, as we as we went went to air, as it was, is that um, L- London is going to be entering Tier Three because of, of quite a high spike in, in cases in recent days. Um, and actually, also, Matt Hancock has, has announced that they seem to have evidence of a new variant. Is the phrase they're using of coronavirus, which may may be linked, may, may be linked to the, to the quick spread in the southeast of the uk so things aren't looking great this is this is still you know the, the plan is still to have this sort of five-day grace period where restrictions are significantly relaxed i think the rules are going to be that you, you can have up to three households mixing indoors um over, the, over a five-day christmas period so um things aren't looking fantastic obviously in the long term we've got the vaccine several vaccines now um approved and and, and the uk seems to have done quite a good job actually in, in getting stockpiles of those and securing deals on, on getting vaccines and um, but but it uh, i'm i'm quite concerned that january is going to see quite a large number of cases um, and and a significant number of deaths throughout january and february even as the vaccination program rolls out Um a little shout out to coventry my hometown was where where the first person outside clinical trial to receive the vaccine i think in the world um so so shout out to coventry for that it's nice to be known for that and, and not other things that we're usually known for um but but in terms of January and February, I, I'm quite concerned. I think we're going to be looking at quite a high number of cases and quite a high number of deaths. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to come in on this and, and share your thoughts. Sh- should we be having this five day grace period over Christmas? Is is this the right policy approach for the government? Uh, Callum, what? Well, mm,
3: I, I, I mean, I was hopeful, Bradley, that um, I might be able to go home for this Christmas um i think that's now looking increasingly unlikely because not only is lincolnshire in tier three um but so is uh but hertfordshire is going to be as well uh, which is where my family lives um so i think even if there's this grace period i i i I haven't decided for definite but i think it's very unlikely that i'm going to be going home which will be a shame for me personally and many other families as well in a similar position i i, I don't understand the consistency of just putting lots of areas and it's re- even they've made it even more patchwork now they they've they've tried to exclude certain districts as well which is very very odd um exact the polar opposite of what um the scientists have been recommending, which is obviously a consistent national uh, approach um, so it, it's patchwork and then, at the same time, you're introducing these tiers that people have definitely got to follow uh, except for this very short period over christmas and you know we said in an earlier podcast that you know that that might it might have been possible to have uh, a, a grace period over Christmas. If you maintained a really strict lockdown until the last minute um that that might have made it more viable. But I think that again, like with like with the fishing issue, I think this government's just a bit insane Um because that they're setting it up to be just a huge national super spreader event. Um, very very scary and again especially just before brexit as well you know this this is a this is a a disaster government in in, in every respect um not only are they they setting us up to fail on international trade but they're going to kill thousands of people by encouraging them to mix over christmas um while at the same time also telling people to isolate it's completely incoherent no one. You know, I saw an article today talking about the test and trace t- trace system. You know um, the people working on that bless them. You know they they're, they're trying to do a good job, but they're just having people not answering their calls, slamming the phone down because the whole thing doesn't work. Um, no, I, I'm not sure at this stage the grace period over Christmas uh, should be happening. I have to say um, that would be my answer to that.
0: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, you can perfectly understand why they've announced the grace period. You know, it's uh, it, it's Christmas, isn't it? And, and and that's the time when people will, will want to see their family, particularly after this year. Um, you know, I I know people that haven't really seen their family in almost a year now at this point. And um, so you can completely understand why they would want some sort of grace period. And um, I, I think the problem is, is that they decided to end the national lockdown at the start of December. and and, you know we've gone into a tiered system but it's being we're being told it's stricter than the last one but i think that's questionable when you when you look at you know most shops are open and 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 things like that i think i think in some ways it's stricter but in other ways i think it's less so you know gyms and shops and things are open um so i i I think you know they've almost they've almost done Everything Bar just completely opening everything else up again. They've almost done everything they could to ensure that there's a, there's a high infection rate just before everyone decides to then go and mix in free households indoors. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm obviously not suggesting they're deliberately trying to do that, but it, it seems like a really poor, poorly thought out set, set of ideas because we've seen the tiered system doesn't really work. You know, we introduced the tiered system months ago. And, and it led to cases being so high across the board, across across the country, that we had to go into a national lockdown. And that was, you know, we introduced the tiered system last time at a much lower level of cases. So I I don't know why the government thinks this is going to work now. And it, it's almost it's almost impossible not to draw the conclusion they've sort of just given up a bit and, and they've given up on the idea of being able to, to contain the virus anymore. Mr Roper, what do you think?
1: Well, uh, as somebody that, in the, well, next week, I'll be returning to London for Christmas, or at least I'm planning on it at the moment. I, I find it extremely concerning, as as was rightly identified, that we opened everything up so much just before Christmas. It's like building up water against the floodgates and then letting them open suddenly. Obviously, we are going to have this deluge of cases. And I think that because the vaccination progress is only in its infancy, We can't risk so many people in the general public at the moment. Only so many vulnerable people would have been vaccinated by this point. And it takes around a month to get that done because they have to have their two doses. So we have to remember that so many people, potentially elderly and vulnerable people, will be going home for Christmas because the government tells them it's okay. And potentially they could have their family members, students coming home, other family members coming for Christmas, for Christmas dinner, all come into the house and risking spreading this virus. And if there's a second um, or second wave, if there's another um, variant, as they're calling it, that, that has just emerged in the south of England that's spreading faster than, than the, the ordinary COVID that we, we've been trying to tackle up till now, then this is going to be accelerated even more. It seems ridiculous. But at the same point, at the same point is that I've also got sympathy for the people that want to just get home for Christmas because actually it does take it. This year has been incredibly stressful. People are suffering with mental health, depression. They're suffering in, in, in terms of economic stress in terms of risking losing their house. Some of them may have lost their job and it's just a time for people to enjoy themselves. So I can understand why people would want to get home. I mean, I want to get home and see my family as well. But it's this balance. It's it's how how do we weigh it up? Because ultimately, unnecessary deaths are now going to happen because of this government's actions. And we've said it before and we've said it throughout the pandemic. But once again, it seems to me that a short sighted set of actions are now going to have long term implications that is risking people's lives. And, And for me, that's unacceptable.
2: Yeah, so sorry,
0: I lost, I couldn't couldn't unmute myself there. Um, yeah, I I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think j- just to clarify, I've just been reading up on the on the uh, the new variant. Um, at, at the moment, it it's unclear whether whether it's actually linked to to the to the spiking cases seen in the southeast. I think it's London and Kent area amongst others. Um, it, it's unclear whether that new variant is actually causing that. Um, the, the, the health secretary has said it it may be linked to to that higher rise. Um, and they they have a, a pro- they they've let the World Health Organization know. Um, so it it will be interesting to see. And I, I suppose this is the problem, isn't it, with allowing the virus to spread so much, in which it has in, in this country and, and a few others. Is that the more the virus spreads and replicates, the higher the chances of mutation and and and, and new strains and and all sorts of things. And I, I'm not an expert. It's possible that things like that might have a complication with the vaccine. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm not a an expert virologist, but it, it doesn't seem like a good idea to have a policy that allows the virus to spread so much and and, poss- and possibly mutate. Ollie, we're going to come to you for for final thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, um, I completely agree with what's been said about the the grace period over Christmas. I uh, I think it could have been, uh, something that was viable in terms of um, like putting a cost of of lives on it because, at the at the at the way it is, it's just it's just like almost inconceivable that it it is going to be as Callum says, like a, a super spreader event, which is just going to be like massively promoted by the government, um, and I think it might lead to people also thinking like, if they see their family over Christmas and there are no infections and like no one in their family gets ill, they're going to think, oh, well, this isn't so bad, like, what are we, it's, it's not going to help towards sentiments of anti-lockdown. And I know they're a massive minority, but I think it's really important, considered all the undermining of their own policy that the government's done this year. Um, yeah, I think it could have been something that was good. Um, like if you look to other countries now, like, um, New Zealand, for example, went for a a zero COVID policy, um, Australia did in the end. And now there are still very few cases there. Um, it could have been something that, you know, was incredibly good after a a really traumatic year for a lot of people. Um, but I, I don't think. Uh, when when we're still having you know 18,000 cases um per week and and thousands of deaths per week i don't think it's something that should be going ahead
0: yeah thanks um so di- difficult times ahead i think i think the next couple of weeks um are possibly going to see more areas going going to tier 3 um, and obviously london is is heading into tier 3 i'm not sure when that actually comes into effect but it was announced today um and, and obviously yeah, you know, for a lot of people at the worst time in, in the in the build up to Christmas. Um but there there will be this five day grace period and I think um it it'll be interesting to see how people respond to that actually and how many people take that up. Um well, all I would say to our listeners is um I'm I'm certainly not gonna tell anyone not to visit their family. I think just just exercise what you think is due caution and, and be careful during those days. Um but we will be back next week. Fear not, you will hear from us again before Christmas. Um I, I suppose we should probably have a bit of a, a Christmas special podcast um, uh, next time, maybe. I, I don't know what that would look like. I'm just announcing it off the top of my head. Maybe we can talk about the politics of Christmas. Um, who, who knows? If you've got any suggestions, let us know on, on social media. Um, but for now, it it's a, a goodbye from me, Bradley, uh, and it's goodbye from Mr Roper.
1: Goodbye, everyone. I've got an idea for a title for that show. All I want for Christmas is a Labour government. Have a safe week, everyone.
0: Fantastic! I this is why we always leave the titles to Mister he, he He's a genius in that department, uh, and it's a goodbye from Mister Watt. Goodbye. Good. Stay safe, uh, Mister Watt. Not sounding convinced by that title, um, and it, and it's goodbye from Ollie as well.
2: I thought the title was great. Uh, goodbye, everyone.
0: Fantastic. There you go. If you've got any better suggestions, let us know. It's, it's,
3: it's, it's a great title. I, I concur entirely with it. I, I look forward to uh, to that special. Mean, that.
0: You, you just sounded slightly exasperated when you came on I'm
3: just exasperated with everything, Bradley. I'm sorry.
0: It, uh, after this year, that is perfectly understandable. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone. Um, and we will see you next time.